Hello, everyone. Today on Political Agenda, Professor Ian Chong returns to the show to talk about Singapore's international relations. And we talked about the past four years under Trump, the changing global context in which Singapore operates in, the challenges that we face. And this became quite an expansive conversation about um, all the challenges that we face domestic and internationally, and actually how they're very closely interrelated. And then we talked about the rise of China and that context. And we finished off by talking about the election of uh, Joe Biden as president and what that means for Singapore. I hope you enjoy the conversation. As always, if you like what we do, if you want to support new narrative, and we desperately need your support, really, really need your support, I hope you will join us as a member at newnarrative.com slash join, or you can donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. Thank you very much. And now, take it away, Subash. Okay, joining us right now, Ian Chong. Hello, Ian. Welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks for having me back. I'm surprised you decided to do so after the last time. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great. And we had such a good response to it. Definitely, I wanted to have you back. Uh, and especially today in the wake of a Biden victory in the U.S. presidential elections. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people are going to be very curious about what you think um, that's what impact that's going to have on Singapore, on uh, the international relations of Southeast Asia, our relationship to the US and so on. Uh, for, for those of us who are tuning in for me for the first time who didn't hear your previous uh, visits, would you like to just briefly introduce yourself? Oh, sure. So uh, I'm a political scientist. I work on uh, security issues mainly, largely looking at uh, Asia, North, both Northeast and Southeast Asia, China, uh, U.S.-China relations, uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, um, and all my comments uh, only are representative of uh, myself. I don't speak for anybody else or any other entity. So I am wearing a uh, blue uh, short sleeve uh, polo top and then uh, khaki shorts and uh, socks, white socks. Cool, thank you. And your pronouns are? My pronouns are he, him. Great, thanks Ian. Okay, so um, well, let's start with the status quo. Right. How would you describe um, Trump's policy towards Southeast Asia, if he had, has one at all? I'm not even sure if he has one or if he even knows where Southeast Asia is, apart from the fact that we hosted that one summit. Right. But what is, what is the current status quo with regards to China, Southeast Asia, Singapore in particular, of course, and the US? So whatever Trump thinks or does not think, there's a Trump administration foreign policy. And there, it does take Southeast Asia into account. It uh, sees Southeast Asia as uh, a site where it contests with uh, the PRC, a site where it believes uh, disputes that are salient to U.S. interests exist. So in particular, uh, the South China Sea and freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. And in addition to that, there's also the question of its alliance and partnership relations. So we may think when that comes in, maybe it's Thailand or, or the Philippines, which are formal treaty allies, but we know that the cooperation with them have not been as close and there's been more tension in the relationship in recent years. Where it's actually really important is if you think about the main US strategic relationship. So these are the allies in Japan and South Korea. They are major trading nations. They depend significantly on imports of energy. Where do those imports of energy have to go through? The South China Sea. Uh, so one of the reasons for the US being so forward on the South China Sea is that it needs to uh, show its allies that it has their back. Right? Otherwise, uh, there will be a lot more doubt. You know, why would we want to get, uh, maintain this alliance relationship with, with the U.S.? And of course, Ta Taiwan is the same thing. Uh, Taiwan borders the South China Sea. Um, they're, they're not a formal treaty ally, but um, under the Taiwan Relations Act, um, its security is, in the words of the act, of grave concern to the, to, to the U.S. So in that sense, uh, Taiwan also being a trading nation, also being a net energy importer, uh, also needs access to the South China Sea. Um, in addition to, of course, uh, Taiwan's own very tumultuous relationship with, uh, with China. And so the U.S. presence uh, in the region helps secure those relationships. And, so, and you know, even if it doesn't have these more direct stakes uh, in, in the region, uh, the region remains important to it. And uh, 
insofar as uh, the U.S. sees the PRC as a competitor, then you know its role, the Washington sees its role in Southeast Asia as trying to maintain a situation where the PRC does not have a veto over U.S. actions. So that's, I think, the groundwork. And for U.S. administrations, really, since the George W. Bush one, so that's uh, Bush 43, it's been pretty consistent. Even the Trump administration, I think, maintains that baseline. Where the Trump administration is different is how it tries to implement. Now, that implementation is a lot more chaotic. Um, before, under the Obama administration, we saw things like the rebalancing, we saw things like the TPP, very clearly articulated strategies, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we can, of course, critique whether they're good or bad, uh, whether they're effective or not, but they're clearly articulated. With uh, the Trump administration, they have this Indo-Pacific strategy, which is a lot more amorphous. It looks at drawing together uh, Japan, Australia, India, uh, and the US. So it's formerly called the, it's gone through several names, it's called the, uh, previously the Quad, um, uh, the Arc of Democracies, uh, and the whole point being that democracies should be standing on the same side against this uh, threat of uh, authoritarian China. So, so that has been the sort of basis of the Trump administration's Southeast Asia policy, uh, well, East Asia policy, not just Southeast Asia. But what that translates into is a lot less clear, right? There's uh, no clear economic element because the Trump administration issues this sort of multilateral liberalization of the economy, right? That's part of their support base, so they won't go there. And the Trump administration, too, has been at times quite down on its uh, allies, uh, in, including Japan, saying that, well, it's sort of a dead weight, they don't contribute. I mean, th these have been longstanding issues in, uh, in the U.S. alliances, but it's become more pronounced under Trump. But at the same time, they want this cooperation. So that kind of um, fluctuating situation is the status quo that, that we see now. Mm-hmm. And now you didn't mention um, another thing which America often exports like uh, deliberately or not deliberately, but values human rights. Has there been sort of, has the Trump administration emboldened greater authoritarianism in Southeast Asia, do you feel, through either its example or through a lack of, uh, or even an encouragement of authoritarianism um, or a, a lack of response uh, to um, authoritarian actions, which may formally have drawn a response, but Trump just you know ignored or even tacitly supported. So that's a great question because I think even on that front, the Trump administration has been quite mixed. So hmm. in terms of Southeast Asia, they've been quite silent um, right. on the more, uh, shall we say, conservative bent that governments, even you know more democratic ones like um, like Indonesia. Uh, like Malaysia and, of course, Thailand have been going. Well, Malaysia's gone a bit back and forth. Right, right. But, I mean, the, the <laughs> most recent round, yeah. right, they've, they've been uh, quite silent on it. Yeah. And also, Thailand, I mean, previously, they, uh, U.S. administrations would be more vocal about coups. They, don't, they, they think transitions are, there are sort of acceptable, but the use of military force to do so, uh, less so. So they've been sort of silent there. Um, and they've been sort of quasi-silent on Cambodia, and it's mm. sort of... Um, the sort of tribulations it's had with its uh, electoral and uh, political processes. Right. But um, they've been very, very vocal in support of uh, pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong. Right. Um, and uh, to the extent of, uh, you know, putting laws in place. So these are laws, it's not just policy. Um, so they agreed to laws that were pushed through Congress to uh, sanction individuals and organizations from Hong Kong and China that w were... Um, deemed to be involved in uh, a lot of the excesses, mm -hmm. um, in a lot of the uh, suppression uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, likewise, they one of the sort of real points that they've been trying to push in their relationship with Taiwan is that they're standing together as democracies, that um, Taiwan's uh, openness, its pluralism is something to be celebrated. So um, looking at the Trump administration, it sends this very mixed message, right? Uh, there's very strong, vocal, visible support mm -hmm. for uh, certain kinds of values we might associate uh, with the United States. And at the same time, 
you know, this sort of uh, silence uh, that's almost complicit, right, in, uh, with regard to some of the excesses that we see uh, elsewhere in Southeast Asia. But the common theme there is China. So how much of this is really uh, a, a strategic rivalry with China aimed at weakening China via Hong Kong, via Taiwan, right, and then supporting allies around China and South Korea and Japan versus South, uh, Southeast Asia where authoritarianism has occurred and, and the Trump turns by an eye because it's not seen as being directly impactful on China. So how much of it is China and how much of it is the values itself? Right, so I think the Trump administration has not been clear on that either because if you think about Southeast Asia and the sort of argument that, well, you need an arc of democracies, well, Southeast Asia also borders China. Mm. So you, if you think about, okay, trying to address the China challenge, it would make it would be reasonable to bolster um, you know, uh, democracy in, in the region. And also they've been quite silent on the Philippines and what's mm, going on there. Yes, yes. So it would make sense, but uh, they've not been doing so. It would be also useful to be consistent, right? So you have one line, but um, that's not been the case. Uh, so I think what we see really is a certain reactiveness. So because China has been very forceful with regard to Hong Kong and also with regard to Taiwan, the Trump administration has felt a need to respond. And part of that response has been this emphasis on uh, democracy, been this emphasis on values. Insofar as in Southeast Asia, there's, there's pressure, but there's less pushback um, from the region. So it get, it's not on the radar screens, I think, of uh, top policymakers and legislatures in the US as much. And so in that regard, there's more silence. And I think I would also have to add that the groups who are working with Congress and the administration in the US from, uh, who are supportive of Hong Kong and Taiwan, they are far more active mm -hmm. than uh, groups from Southeast Asia. I think um, the main group that has a presence uh, in Washington uh, from Southeast Asia is the, uh, um, is the ASEAN Chamber of uh, Commerce. So right. um, they tend to be you know, more for commercial interests and they tend to be more tied in with uh, establishments uh, across the region. Oh, okay, okay. So is that our main sort of um, visibility in Washington then commercial rather than you know, strategic or uh, any other kind of partnership or values-based one? You know, uh, and we're not, most of us aren't democracies. So is that, is that how we're perceived in Washington? Right, so there's been a big focus in the commercial aspect of the relationship uh, between Southeast Asia and the, and the US. And also there's this sort of lingering effect of a claim about, um, I guess, difference based on Asian values, which, mm. which um, I mean, it's lasting, but I, I mean, I, I know you think it's dubious. Um, I, I think so too. Um, actually, what is really, really fascinating is if you look back at 1994, when uh, Lee Kuan Yew made, the, um, made his uh, you know, famous interview with Farid Zakaria on, uh, on Foreign Affairs, there was a counter actually by Kim Dae-jung so that counter by Kim Dae-jung was talking about the importance of universal democratic values. We don't see much of it, um, that side of the argument here in Singapore. Yeah. But I think uh, what is quite telling is, I mean, one of the places that, you know, get a lot of pressure from China too is South Korea. And, you know, just, just maybe about a month ago, to sort of uh, commemorate the Korean War, uh, the, the Korean pop group BTS, mm -hmm. um, a, a member said, well, they're commemorating the Korean War. And the, there was a big sort of response from people in China saying, well, no, you do not celebrate the, you do not recognize, you do not um, um, give proper recognition to the Chinese role uh, in, in, the, in the conflict. And so there was a backlash uh, against BTS right. um, from, from China. Now, what was interesting is that they have a big you know, global fan base. And that big global fan base uh, responded very strongly to China. And basically, they started um, you know, from, from tweets and Instagram posts, they, they you know, started to really push back in terms of the sort of global visibility. And that's added to uh, the more negative image, impression uh, of China. So why I find it's curious is because you, you might, I don't know whether you know this, but um, the Korean wave, a lot of that, originated with uh, Kim Dae-jung's uh, presidency, right? He really wanted to push, you know, Korea as sort of universal values. Yeah, he Not started funding. Right, right, right. So, so yeah. it's interesting, right? What I asked myself 
in in that uh, context is okay. So you have a situation where you have Korea that you know has its very traditional side. Not all of it is very positive. It has a traditional side, but tries to also at the same time align itself with certain more universal values. And they, one of the things that we've seen is there's this widespread support for its position. Now, if Singapore gets into a spat um, uh, with China, as indeed we've saw in uh, the period from you know about 2012 uh, going to 2017, peaking in the 20 late 2016, uh, mid 2017 period. Uh, we were on our own. There was no broader... So this is the Terex and all that, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, we, there was no sort of broader uh, international support right. Right, for our position. So, right, right. so I think um, if you look back to that debate in 1994 and you look at this, these two very different trajectories and the way that we are played the um, were portrayed so South Korea and Singapore internationally in the kind of resonance that we get is a bit different. So despite your uh, Crazy Rich Asians, which I think is a terrible film yeah. <laughs> and all that, but um, you know, it's uh, the the response I think has been interesting. Well, th- this is really interesting because what you 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 seem suggesting is that there's um, the the decisions that uh, Lee Kuan Yew made and his successors have made in uh, in in power. Um, to take a certain line regarding values has now affected our broader strategic interests, right? So what you have is, uh, um, you know, uh, actually that we have become uh, in many ways isolated because of the, the, the moral positions that we have taken to uh, quite often to justify things uh, domestically, right? As opposed to, uh, South Korea, which uh, has been able to organically grow broader international support um, because of its moral position. And I don't think I've ever, uh, you know, like thought of this before or seen this argument made, but this is actually uh, really interesting when you consider how our government talks about these, uh, you know, really... Um, Asian values and it's these are the very authoritarian values is very important to us and our security but in the long run uh, you're, you're suggesting it has undermined um, our our position internationally well what I'm saying is that there are certain downsides right with any yeah. policy there are going to be benefits and there are going to be downsides and we haven't discussed downsides as much right so I think with the Asian values push what we essentially say that okay things in singapore are singapore special it has you know there's no relevance elsewhere we there's very little that we can take uh from from other experiences so that that's fine i think that position suggests that everything that happens domestically we own it uh whatever actions we take we own it that's fine but the downside is if you're going to be singapore special yeah then if you at moments when you need solidarity it's going to be more difficult Right, right. Um, so South Korea took a different tack, and yeah. interestingly, that's also the tack that Taiwan has taken because of their global isolation, uh, diplomatically at least. So they've been stressing, oh, you know, they're progressive, they are liberal. And that's been a big push, you know, in their foreign policy um, across successive administrations, and that's one of the reasons why they seem to be able to get continued support, right, despite their uh, diplomatic isolation. So. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say here is, yes, you know, Asian values, I can see the rationale behind it if, yeah, we're, yeah. Sort of immoral behind, if we're immoral about it. But uh, we should also be aware that there are certain downsides to it. It's, right. not, it's not this sort of cost-free or risk-free strategy. Right. And, and the whole policy of non-interference as well, I, I'm assuming is wrapped up in that, that, you know, you don't um, comment on other countries. You don't, quote-unquote, interfere or intervene in their politics. Uh, but it works both ways because if you're saying we should all be isolated from each other, then when you need help, we're also isolated from each other. Whereas if you're a country which argues for common cause, common values, uh, a certain universal set of human rights, then in times of crisis, you can call upon that. Right. I think also the whole intervention, interference argument sometimes is couched in ways that is too stark. It's yeah. not. It's not a clear cut answer. It never has been. So, um, foreign intervention is one of the things I work on, and of course, it has a big downside. It gives excuse for colonialism in its various colors. Yeah. It gives rise to things like in Iraq and Afghanistan, clearly egregious and over the top. Yes. Yes. Right. But at the same time, um, you know, 
you if you see sort of common cause uh, that you know does provide support uh, that means that uh, you are constraining yourself to certain kinds of action that you know may mean you need to hold on to certain universal principles like say okay you're not going to be excessive in terms of uh, the way that you treat your citizens you may have to uphold certain um, you know uh, more universal ideas about rights now and also the reality is that you know we're all somewhere in between because even mm-hmm. if you look at a place like Singapore um, you know, multinational corporations have a lot of clout. They sit on things like the National Wages Council, right? Yeah. Uh, so there, there is external interference. When you look at things like these business associations, you have foreign multinationals who are members. I actually think that's fine. I'm not making an argument that they shouldn't be there. Yeah. But what I'm saying is there is going to be foreign influence if we're going to be international, unless you're going to be like North Korea. Yeah. yeah. Right? So the question is not about whether you have foreign interference or not, but how you regulate it, how you think through what kind of interference you find um, is acceptable, what is less so, how you regulate and monitor these kinds of things, which is not something we've had a more open discussion about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, I went through all of this in an episode of the show where I you know, pointed out like foreign companies lobbying the government and spending lots of money on lobbying the government somehow is okay, but then donations to civil society to lobby the government for change with regards to human rights. Not okay. Yeah, you you, you're, you're like Mr. Foreign Interference, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, Shamugam has specifically talked about a law against foreign interference and then talked about specifically TOC, the Online Citizen Asia, and New Narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I feel very much ground, ground zero. <laughs> Uh, but let, let's come back to this whole thing. Um, you know, this this conversation has very taken a very interesting turn, which I did not expect. Um, the, the the phenomenon I talk, you're talking about it's not really in a vacuum, right? Because in Singapore, in the past couple of years, we've had a very active debate about Singapore's uh, sort of relationship with China. And on one side, people are saying, "Hey, we're a small country; we have to act like um, you know, act as such." And on the other side, people are saying, "No, we have to stand up for our interests." and fight for, you know, Singapore. Um, And so what you've been talking about is um, in that context, it's not in a vacuum of, you know, on the one side you have um, isolationism and on the other side you have um, universal values, right? Um, And there's also, of course, the fact that China doesn't just have an impact on us economically, strategically, politically, but also... Uh, culturally, because there is um, a lot of um, consumption of Mandarin media produced uh, from Beijing, from the you know from Chinese um, um, propaganda sources. So, how does that then change our understanding of the situation? Right. So, the Mandarin language productions that come out of uh, China and some of the sort of pro-Beijing Mandarin language media from Taiwan, what they do push is this idea of a greater China, of a greater um, cultural similarity that dovetails with an expectation of uh, political sympathy. Mm. Now, uh, that has been something that has become more evident really since the late 2000s, but particularly after Secretary General Xi Jinping took power. Uh, He has put the um, United Front Work Department that does a lot of this sort of work, uh, external work. Um, He's raised their provenance. He's put the uh, Overseas uh, Chinese Affairs Bureau under the United Front Work Department, as well as the Religious Affairs Bureau. And when they do their external outreach work, this certainly comes up. And uh, places from you know, uh, Germany through Sweden to the UK, Australia, Canada, have been reporting, also New Zealand, have been reporting that, you know, there have been efforts at, uh, you know, influencing local politics, influencing uh, and perhaps activating uh, the local ethnic Chinese population. Uh, uh, Taiwan has reported this as well. And uh, where I'm going with this is, so if this is a global push by Beijing, it would be, I think, very strange uh, if Singapore is exempted, right? Mm. And what we do see is that, at, at least uh, from the Taiwan side, as they've been trying to look at some of the uh, disinformation that they've been receiving, they've looked at content farms, 
so there are two reports. One, uh, well, actually three. One by the reporter, uh, I think a couple by the Newslands, and one by uh, Commonwealth mm. that sort of trace back some of these content farms to uh, places, to uh, entities located in Malaysia th- that have operations in Singapore too. Oh, um, wow. So, I mean, you can, you can look up these reports and, um, you know, they, they push out disinformation, um, in, including around the coronavirus. So the point being that this foreign uh, influence stuff in the media is all around. And for Singapore, I think, you know, as I said earlier, it's important for us to recognize um, where our interests lie and where yeah. we want to be and how we want to regulate this sort of interaction. So that's not a conversation we've really had. And at the same time, um, I think there's the question of you know how much how accepting we are yeah. uh, going to be uh, of of these sorts of um, influences. And again, you know, there's been a lot of focus uh, on on Soros, etc., but far less on the sort of Chinese aspect of it, right. which um, frankly I, sp- I find a little bit surprising. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we have what we have. But you you see my broader point with this question, right? Is there any point asserting you know, Asian values and non-interference in an age where um, those Asian values can also be turned around and used against you and also interference is happening whether you like it or not. So in order to uh, hedge against that, um, you know, I would think, and maybe it's, I mean, I, I definitely am biased here, but it would be better to uh, move towards a certain position of universal human rights and shared interests um, that would, um, you know, give us greater international solidarity and act as a buttress against these um, the existing attempt, uh, you know, the the existence of these these forces. So I think where the Asian values thing comes in, and I think really shows up the poverty of this concept is that it's really amorphous and it can mean many things. Essentially, it boils down to trust the authorities who are in charge. Um, But if there's not more open discussion of what that authority should be, what kind of constraints or where they should be empowered particularly, the the way that other things can seep in to Asian values and possibly overtake it or hijack it is is far more prominent because part of the current PRC cell is that they are representative of Asian values. Yeah. Now, uh, we also know that Asia is highly diverse. So yeah. it's half the world. Oh, yeah. But I mean, when you have something that is Asian values that say the PRC claims, yeah. um, and that's, you know, the, the official narrative there, it may differ regionally. China is a huge country. Um, you know, it's very different from you know, if you if you ask um, people from Japan, do you think you're Asian? I, I think you get a positive answer, and the sorts of things that they express would be quite different. Um, and so too, you know, you run from Northeast Asia all the way to Southeast Asia, and of course, Indonesia, as you know, is highly diverse. Mm-hmm. So if we're all going to be Asian values, and we're all going to be highly different, um, so where, where does it come to? It may mean everything and nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that whole Asian values stuff may have served a certain purpose in, right. in the 90s, but we do have to ask ourselves that in today's world where there is pressure coming from multiple directions, including China, including the United States, mm-hmm. where, where should we stand? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't see the uh, US as a unequivocal good, right? No, I, of course I, They've not. done a lot of damage uh, in the world, oh, yeah. but, we, but we have to have a clearer sense of where we stand. Yeah. Um, and I'm not really sure we have gone there in our public conversation yet. You know, that's that's a very interesting... I don't know if we have the time to actually get into that whole conversation, but um, where do you see our interests lying? So, personally, I think that for me, the baseline for Singapore is that we need to talk about pluralism. We need to talk about our diversity and to look at diversity not as a threat, but to celebrate it because... One thing about uh, Singapore society is that we are highly plural. We have people yeah. from you know, different ethnic backgrounds. We have people from um, different religious backgrounds. And this diversity will only increase over time. And that sort of more narrow view of uh, you know, ethnic 
slash political uh, sympathy is probably going to be something that could get Singapore society in a lot of trouble. Mm. Um, and so there needs to be recognition of our uh, plurality in our politics, right? So some of these issues of discrimination about where, where we put uh, Chineseness and how we understand Chineseness uh, in Singapore in relation uh, to all the different kinds of people who, who are here, uh, that, that sort of um, more openness, more ability to accept disagreement, I think is important. I think that's the starting point. Um, and that is what I would argue allows for greater resilience. Mm -hmm. Let's move on. And I think another uh, sort of conception that I've heard is um, this argument that Trump is, has actually been good for Southeast Asia or the countries around China because he is very realistic and you know, clear-eyed about the dangers of uh, a resurgent China. Uh, how, uh, how do you feel about that argument? So I think it's also important to pass that out, meaning to say that you can recognize a problem that doesn't mean that you have the solutions. Right. <laughs> They're two different, yes, two di yes. very different kinds of things. Yeah. So I think where the Trump administration has gone is to be more openly wary about China. And I wouldn't say that they are an outlier. We've started seeing this movement, I would argue, in the later half of the uh, of Bush 43's administration, mm -hmm. when they were starting to get more involved um, in Asia, including Southeast Asia. This became quite evident in uh, around 2010. Uh, this is during the Obama administration when they were talking about the rebalance, when they were talking about the TPP. TPP. So there's a recognition that the area of contestation with uh, China, the contestation, I would also have to say, it doesn't necessarily have to be destructive, but the area of contestation and competition mm -hmm. um, is uh, the center of gravity, or the strategic center of gravity is in East Asia, both Northeast and Southeast Asia. Now, where the Trump administration has gone is that it has departed from previous Republican and Democrat administrations in emphasizing, in the degree that it's emphasized unilateral action Mm -hmm. Right in the degree that it's emphasized confrontation uh, with China and right. also allowed for friction with its friends and allies in the region. Right, so I talked earlier about the sort of alliance questions with Japan and so on, and also with South Korea talked about uh, you know removing troops and all that. So that kind of a situation, oddly, it's it's yes, it's highly unstable, it's highly unpredictable, and. For, I think a lot of leaders in the region, we don't like that unpredictability. Mm. Um, and so I understand the apprehension. But it's done, I suppose, one sort of positive thing. It's drawn the attention of Beijing towards Washington. And what that means is that Beijing has less time and energy to you know, pressure the region more. And it has actually an incentive to try to be nice to its neighbors, right? Exception, uh, Taiwan being an exception because China just sees it as an anomaly that has to be quashed. Mm. Um, but the rest of the region, right, because China hopes that it has a more secure backyard as it deals with the US challenge, it has an incentive, right, to, to work and play well uh, with, with its neighbors. So in that sense, the greater friction between Washington and Beijing gives regional states uh, some space, mm -hmm. right? It gives us uh, an opportunity to hide. So I think um, if you look at some of the people in Hong Kong and Taiwan who've been very vocally pro-Trump, mm -hmm. uh, even at the same time when they're also pro-democracy, that, that I think is a mo the most evident display of this sort of mentality, yeah. right? The enemy of enemy is my friend, mm -hmm. um, you know, have the U.S. keep pressing China so they're out of our hair, that sort of a mindset. So I think there's something to, to that. Now, uh, the cost, of course, is this unpredictability, is this closure to greater economic and social liberalization. So uh, that's, I think, the sort of downside to it. And so if a U.S. administration moves uh, back to or closer to its... Uh, the sort of tradition that, that it's had, it will certainly, there will certainly be benefits in terms of greater predictability, but there are risks there as well. And in particular, if, as we've heard 
both Biden and his advisors um, talk about they want more multilateralism. They want yeah. to work with allies a lot more. They want to work a lot more through international organizations. Now think about what that means. Play that out, right? It means to say that if, and I think it's, it's highly probable that the contestation between the US and China will continue. Mm. They want to work with allies and partners on that, concert, on, on that consultation. Um, they want to, if they want to work um, in response to China in international organizations, mm-hmm. uh, often these organizations are you know, one country, one vote. They need to lobby and get others on board. What that means then is it creates a situation where countries in Southeast Asia, and we all choose differently based on our interests, but we have a situation where uh, you're asked to show more initiative. You're asked to demonstrate um, that you're on board with this liberal international order. Now, whatever you choose, that could, because you know it's something that the US is pushing, it could create an impression in Beijing that you're siding with the US, mm. right? Uh, and that could bring on repercussions such as the punishment on Australia that we, we're seeing currently. Right. It could also create a situation where if the US at the same time feels that you know, you're just sort of going through the motions and not being really um, up, you know, up to uh, supporting its position, it could uh, elicit more pressure from Washington. Right. So we could end up in a situation um, in Southeast Asia where we are more caught in between the space for new maneuver mm. is actually far less. You could upset either Beijing or Washington or both at the same time. Mm. And this gets back right to this longstanding policy in Singapore, but also in Southeast Asia as well, about not choosing sites. I mean, I would say that not choosing sites for different countries is very different um, so because, you know, based on what their concerns are. But that not choosing sites argument rests on a certain assumption. And we have to question how far that assumption holds. And this assumption is that there are deep and significant overlapping interests between Washington and Beijing. Insofar as that exists, it gives us a lot of space for maneuver. It gives us a lot of flexibility. To the extent that the overlap is shrinking, it means that the options of not choosing sites become far fewer. Mm. And also, uh, it may come to a point where the not choosing site option is actually more costly. Yeah. So it's, uh, these, these are sort of possibilities that are out there. And we've not really had a very good conversation about it yeah. a- across uh, Southeast Asia, not just in Singapore, yeah. because I think we need to think about, you know, how to position ourselves, you know, when and if, you know, tensions uh, get worse. And you know, there's been some effort, um, you know, through ASEAN and all that, but because ASEAN is so divided uh, today, there's been very little practical movement. Uh, there's been, there have been some uh, op-eds by my friends of mine, um, both in Singapore and elsewhere, saying, that, oh, well, you know, when the time comes, uh, you know, we may have to choose, but we will choose in a way that's advantageous to Singapore. Yes, everyone would like to have their cake and eat it too. I would like mm-hmm. that too. Yes. But the thing is, um, the situation may not uh, allow us to have this sort of happy, optimal outcome. Mm. And so the conditions under which we have to make tough decisions, um, you know, that's, that's not something that is as openly discussed yet. And I think it's something, this, these sorts of decisions uh, need to come from some sort of uh, social understanding. It can't be uh, some people sitting in a uh, closed back room somewhere m- making decisions uh, on everyone else's behalf. Because if that happens, sometimes what you could get is a lot more tension uh, domestically. So we've seen uh, popular backlash, not, not in Singapore, but you know, the Actually, Trumpism is a, is a good, good example of this. It's belief, right? That a lot of decisions get made in back rooms in Washington yeah. and it leaves people, and you can get a popular backlash. So if we want to avoid that sort of an outcome across Southeast Asia, there needs to be a more open and inclusive conversation about where we want to go and how to get there. This is very interesting because, um, you know, again, this is a sort of contradiction uh, that you're raising where um, on the one hand, if you want an international rules-based regime you talk about international law in as much as it exists multilateralism right this constrains the big countries the big players the powerful players to these rules you then have to step up you have to make your position clear you have to put in effort and you have to participate and you may even have to pick sides 
Whereas if you want to uh, escape from or, or, you know, not do all of that, which requires so much time and effort and energy, and you want to remain a lot more vague and amorphous, your ceding power to these big players, uh, loosening restrictions on them, allowing them to act more unilaterally, which can work to your benefit if you get someone like, uh, you know, Trump. Well, Trump is good good so sometimes it works your benefit you need no both you need yeah. both trump and xi at the same time yes um, yes but 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 the thing is that there's a certain arbitrariness and chance there right you yes. cannot expect yes. that the, the sort of there'll, there'll be a happy inter- intersection all the time yeah uh, so yeah so we are sort of playing on this hope that things will work out that way but i mean i don't know i think it's it's useful i think to run through the risks yeah um which we don't do as much in singapore i, I mean it, it should apply to you know the full range of policies but including foreign policy foreign yeah. security policy and then also this comes back to your earlier point because like can you argue for a sort of international rules-based regime uh, to constrain the powerful internationally and then domestically don't have a rules-based regime which constrains the powerful and uh, a government which asserts the right to act with greater arbitrariness you know in the interest of what it sees as overall benefit for for all right and uh, that that contradiction then undermines your position, uh, you know, if you then want to argue for it internationally. Uh, but also, there's a sort of, um, you know, as anyone who knows the, the tit-for-tat strategy, right, iterative uh, deal decision-making, because um, if you don't establish clear principles for what you're doing, or a clear idea of where your interests are, if you don't even have that conversation internally, let alone demonstrate that internationally, it becomes very hard for people to deal with you and it becomes very hard for people to trust you and then to build up these relationships over time that you can draw upon. So it seems like we're lacking a lot of these things. We don't have clarity um, internally and we don't therefore can't uh, display these uh you know and and do this sort of iterative um this trust building internationally so what i would say though to that is yeah i think one of the things that singapore has going for it and perhaps the region as well is that there was a system that sort of worked for us to our benefit so if you think think about the liberal international order and the prosperity that it created singapore is a big beneficiary of that system right. but that was the cold war you know the cold war in the yeah. 90s well, or? The, the cold war even after the end of the cold war yeah right so that period um from the cold war suddenly we benefited from it yeah um the end of the cold war uh, from you know the early 90s going on to the, we said up until the global financial crisis we yeah. clearly benefited yeah. right it created significant wealth uh, in Singapore and elsewhere in Southeast Asia now that success I think um, has created a understanding that look uh, these things work for us we we are pro status quo we don't want to change things around which I think is part of the reason why elites in the region tend to be very skeptical of Trump because he's very anti that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But with the past four years of uh, Trump uh, being in the White House and also Xi being in Zhongnanhai, what that's created is it's undermined some of the basic principles right, of, of that order. And to assume that things will revert back or you know, we can go back to that sort of sort of happy situation because it also created a lot of inequality. Yeah. But to go back to that sort of situation that people, at least those who are in advantage positions, uh, can enjoy, I think that's a lot more in doubt now. So the initiative from other actors will become more important. Yes, there is the claim that, okay, you know, in Southeast Asia, we're all sort of small, except Indonesia. Um, mm. But in particular, Singapore is... is, no, is I mean, Vietnam is, a, what, 90-something million. Philippines is 110 million. Yes. So these are big, big countries, right, actually. Right, yeah. right, right. You're, you're right. But yes. the impression the, the impression is, is that, you know, Indonesia is, you know, all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, so, so that view, um, you know, is... Uh, I think it's one that suggests, okay, there's not much we can do, so we must mm. just sit back. But I, it's something that I don't, it's a position I don't really agree with mm-hmm. uh, because I think, yes, we may be smaller, we may be weaker, but 
there is room for collective bargaining, mm-hmm. right? So if we band together and collectively bargain, it's possible. But I know why you're laughing because the, the problem is the collective action problem, right? Mm-hmm. You have these diverse sets of countries that have very different kinds of interests. To get them on the same page is highly difficult. Um, and we've seen the trouble that ASEAN has run, run into, yeah. right? If you're going to stick to consensus, then you either have a really, really low, you know, lowest common denominator that yeah. nothing gets done, yeah. um, or you get, just get disagreement and nothing happens either. And I think this is a very good um, example of how we should think about you know, ways to you know, perhaps consider our politics domestically and also regionally is ASEAN, I think, had its role and its function, but we may be at a time when that function needs to be looked at again. Mm. Why, why I say that because this whole consensus, remember, consensus means that everyone has to agree. Yeah. Every single actor has a veto, Yeah. right? If you get just one actor that says no, nothing can go for it, yeah. right? So that made a lot of sense in ASEAN's early days because these are countries with some animosity and tension to each other. So if you slow things down, right, you emphasize non-interference because of, you know, confrontation and all that, right? Yeah. So you emphasize non-interference, you emphasize autonomy for the different actors, you talk about getting consensus. It makes a whole lot of sense because you're trying to dampen things down, you're trying to slow things down, right? right? And you want to decrease tension. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense uh, from the 60s and 70s going forward. But by that same token, when you want initiative, well, the ability and mechanism of mechanisms that slow things down and cool things down and, mm. and you know, that doesn't work for initiative, right? Uh, if initiative, you need to bring various uh, sites together. And um, ASEAN, I think, is a little bit of a victim of its own success, mm. right? So that the success it had <laughs> to cool things down has meant that uh, at a time when it's become more diverse, mm. uh, I mean, ASEAN in its original form was a bunch of um, anti-communist, authoritarian, developmentalist um, regimes, right? And so they had a lot of commonality uh, come the 90s with expansion and also with democratization. uh, That sort of commonality has been eroded. So uh, to bring this more diverse group of uh, actors together um, based on this old sort of uh, operating system, shall we say, uh, you know, creates... Uh, runs into far more obstacles. Yeah. So this issue of ASEAN reform has, has come about, uh, and it's not gone. It's not gone anywhere basically, uh, because I think there's no political will. I think everyone recognizes that you know there's some need to get over the collective action problem. The from the nineties, um, there have been talk about well maybe we want to uh, move to a supermajority kind of decision making. Uh, maybe we want to move to some sort of two track ASEAN. Mm. Uh, there's there are a variety of um, options on the table, mm. none of which have been seriously taken on because I think there's no political will to do so. And part of the reason is because regional governments don't want to have some supranational entity lord over them. I mean, if you think about a lot of the discussions, they say, well, we don't want to end up like the European Union where the you know, European Commission and the European Court of Justice has a lot of say uh, where, where there's a European Central Bank. We don't want to go there. But I think that's a bit of a false argument. Yes, the EU may be, you know, you know where we don't have to go all the way there. Yeah. Um, but I think that reticence uh, from a sense of apprehension uh, towards a curtailment of autonomy, uh, towards a concern about perhaps there may be more intervention, uh, that, that is uh, what's stopping us from going forward. Because, I mean, if you think about it, right, a lot of things we have to deal with in, in ASEAN, but also have to do with intervention in the sense that you want to look at um, illegal trafficking of persons. Mm-hmm. Well, that you start, you start from um, you know, agents and traffickers inside a country, their networks going outside, and then yeah. going to the recipient country. The same thing when you think about, when you think about uh, transboundary haze. Mm. So this is one of my favorite examples because it really shows how tightly things are wound up. You have, of course, the fires in Indonesia. And so often uh, people in Singapore and Malaysia will point their fingers at Indonesia and say, look, 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 mm. you're, not, you're not dealing with your domestic environmental issues. And then Indonesia says, well, yes, but you know, these companies, they are Malaysian. And guess what? It's Singaporean banks who are financing them. Yeah. And so it goes into this sort of circular finger pointing yeah. uh, exercise, which uh, suggests that actually we may need to look at more serious cross-border kinds of coordination uh, that 
frankly, um, regional governments are not ready for. Yeah. Well, the, the, the other reason I was laughing earlier is because you said collective bargaining. Of course, domestically, again, coming back to this theme, which is, you know, emerging is that domestically collective bargaining is not something we really encourage in Singapore. Uh, Come on, yeah. the NTUC stands for... You know, <laughs> why, why are you laughing at NTUC? <laughs> Man. <laughs> right. Yes, of course, whose secretary general sits in, or used to sit in the cabinet and, uh, you know, is still very much represented in the, in, among the elites and elite decision-making. Hey, hey, tripartism all the way. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but you know, it's it's just. I so, find your uh, lack of faith disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> hey, remember who you're talking to? <laughs> you, you you want the heavy breathing? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's just to me like um, you know, in, in like domestically, right? The Singapore government says, "Oh, we don't want all of this, uh, you know, collective bargaining or, uh, you know." They undermine rule of law. They don't want laws. You know, they write laws with the government's explicitly exempted, right? And they say that if you have a government which takes into consideration everyone's view through a technocratic, uh, deliberative uh, decision-making process, it can make decisions for the good of everyone. But then you get to an, the international, the global stage where we are one of nearly 200 countries and that same attitude suddenly is flipped on its head and it's like, oh, we need, you know, protect the, us minorities, protect us small fry. We need rules based. We need multilateralism, you know. Um, and and the, the contradiction that you're now presenting to me just keeps making me laugh because, um, you know, it, it, by the same argument that the PAP makes, well... Uh, if if the the big global superpowers go through a deliberative, consultative, technocratic decision making process, in which the views of small countries like Singapore are represented, they can then come up with decisions that is good for the world as a whole, right? By that same argument, you know, and so that it just it's just making me laugh because you have a government that's just so powerful domestically. And then it gets to the international stage and it has as much power as, as I do in Singapore, you know, which well, is very little. Well, well I think um, it's also important to recognize that there is a lot of criticism of uh, UN and other international agencies. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, because, course, yeah. Uh, because I'm just pointing out the hypocrisy. Right. I'm not saying the UN is great no, or no, no, the well, UN is great. Well, what I'm, what I'm saying yeah. is that the, there's a lot of debate over it, right? Yeah. Um, yes, Consultativeness, inclusiveness is important, but part of the uh, criticism, right, for people who don't want to move in that direction is to say, look, um, if you look at international organizations, they tend to move very, very slowly. Yeah. Uh, they tend to get, um, you know, hijacked by various kinds of distractions. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that, that's, that's an issue um, with this sort of more representative representativeness internationally. And I think uh, for at least the uh, successive administrations in Singapore, I mean, that's, I mean they emphasize cooperation multinational, uh, multilaterally and multinationally. But um, they also say, uh, okay, we don't really trust these things because they're slow and all that. So I think there's a certain degree of consistency. Uh, not to say that it is not um, beyond reproach, right? Mm. That everything, in my view, should be uh, up for uh, you know serious um, you know uh, analysis mm -hmm. and criticism if necessary, yeah. but I mean that there there is that kind of a, a a position. So I mean that also gets back to this issue of um, anarchy internationally. So there's no global government. So in some yeah. sense, states can sort of do what they want internationally yeah. in a way that um, entities and individuals in domestic situations cannot. So. It's not just it's not just Singapore, but um, and I think this is an issue that d does deserve to get talked about, right? It's not just Singapore, but lots of countries. You know, they behave very differently internationally and domestically, and that is, of course, uh, should be that should be uh, cause for discussion. It should be cause for uh, debate. Uh, but I guess in Singapore, again, I get back to this point that we're so comfortable mm -hmm. uh, with what has worked for us. Now that the world is changing, there is not as much impetus to have a greater, more comprehensive discussion yeah. uh, as, as I think ought to be the case. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the other, the other point I want to make was about the liberal international order where, it, you know, we talk about how Singapore benefited from that. But I think it'd be uh, more accurate to say elites benefited it way more from that order than the rest of us. 
um, and people who are in a, uh, in a position to take advantage of that. Because, of course, economically, it's created massive inequality. Um, but what we're also seeing is that uh, certain countries which had access and which had advantages to take advantage of it did, did way better than other countries. So ultimately, we're not going back to that, I think. Mm. Uh, would you agree? We're not, we're not right. going so back I, to I don't that. Right, so I don't think we're going back to it. Yeah. I mean, to, to be sure... I, there, there are two things, two ways you can might you might want to consider gain, right? There's absolute gain, uh, yeah. whether everyone is gaining, and there's relative gain, who is gaining more or less. So I think it's fair to say that there has been absolute gain. It's just that on the relative gains, uh, yes. some have gained far more than, than oh, others. Oh yes, definitely. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, But at any rate, given the support that Trump has had because of you know how he sees this, uh, how his supporters see this world as this globalized world as not treating them equally, mm. I think a Biden administration would have a lot of difficulty to sort of you know, go to a reset mm. to the sort of uh, pre-Trump days. So we have to move on from what we have here. Plus, it's very, very likely that we'll have a Republican-controlled Senate, mm. which means to say that in terms of individuals who get uh, appointed to the Biden cabinet, right, they have to go through a confirmation process. Those people who at least are able to account for some of those Republican concerns are more likely to get confirmed. Mm. Right? right, so that would uh, be another sort of constraint um, on on a Biden administration. So I don't think we're going back to a reset. Right, there may be some adjustment, um, but to sort of completely believe that these past four years mean nothing, I don't think that's possible. Mm. Um, I think also part of it is this uh, U.S.-China tension is here to stay for a while. So what we've seen from uh, both Republicans and Democrats, is that there's a desire uh, to sort of address this China challenge, right? The, the belief that China, disadvant uh, what it's doing is disadvantaging the US. Uh, it's just how to deal with that challenge uh, is what separates Republicans and Democrats. And in fact, this is one of those few areas where there is bipartisan consensus. Mm -hmm. So in all likelihood, that um, general direction will go forward, right? And you know, what we're looking at is the risks of the Trump uh, presidency, which I had mentioned earlier, and the risks of a Biden presidency, they're different because of the different approaches. There's not, there's no sort of happy outcome where, you know, the rainbows come out and birds start singing, yeah, we all yeah. hold hands and sing Kumbaya. It's, um, to be realistic about it, right? Um, you know, it's, the Biden administration will present a different set of challenges. And uh, what, I think it's important to do is to be clear-eyed about those challenges and how I want to deal with them, right? rather than to believe that things will you know, go back to some happy past. That's right. not happening. So let's talk more about the Biden. And I mean, and I know predicting the future is difficult, but we do have a long track record for Biden, both in the Senate and then as vice president. And we know a lot of the people around him, his advisors are going to be inherited from the Obama administration. So what would you see uh, for the Biden administration in terms of its foreign policy and especially for Southeast Asia and Singapore? Right. So I think a Biden administration will uh, be far more forward in uh, emphasizing uh, collaboration, uh, far more interested in multilateral kinds of cooperation on various fronts, possibly not as forward on economics because of the reasons that I said earlier, mm -hmm. but uh, on security and so other areas, they, they, they are, I think, quite will willing to sort of relook at how the, uh, what the Bush, uh, sorry, what the Trump administration has done. Um, so in that regard, I think there are more possibilities for cooperation with the Biden administration. There are more possibilities for more predictable, sustainable relationships. Uh, but that having been said, right, uh, in Southeast Asia, we do have to be mindful about how much we want to emphasize and go with these relationships because there is the potential of blowback uh, mm. from the PRC if they feel that, yes. uh, you know, we are helping to contain China, that kind of thing. So um, it's, it's, going to be, it's going to be complicated. It always is. And I mean, it, this is a time during this transition phase where I think two things need to be happening, and some of which are probably are, is to sort of sound out what is going on mm -hmm. uh, in, in Washington, and the other is to figure out what we want to do here in this region. Uh, because, you know, it's, it's interactive. Uh, we are far less powerful than the US, clearly, but it doesn't mean that we have no say. 
Yeah. Right? So, so if we have some voice opportunities, what is it that we want to say? Uh, what is it that we want to get on the table? Uh, that, that, I think, needs to be done, and it's not being talked about as much. Um, and I think there's something, uh, there's something to be said about the recycling of uh, Obama administration people, because this is a source of uh, some apprehension in the region, mm-hmm. because there's a view that the Obama administration was too soft mm-hmm. uh, on, on issues dealing with uh, Chinese pressure. So we right. got the reclamation and the fortification of uh, the features in the South China Sea, even though uh, Xi Jinping had told Obama that he was going to militarize these things. So, you know, it's a view that, okay, so Obama has, and his people were had, right? Yeah. Um, so there's there's that sort of view that, okay, well, these guys, maybe, you know, the, <laughs> we don't want to show that they, they will cave too easily. Yeah. Um, but I think the apprehension aside, the what I mentioned about the Senate, what I had mentioned about the general bipartisan understanding of uh, what to do with China will mean that the set of options that these people uh, that Biden will bring in will look quite different uh, from the uh, the Obama administration, even though they are faces that we've seen before. Uh, In general, I mean, there are some people who are seen to be generally very um, soft on uh, foreign policy issues and others that are seen to be very hawkish. But I think uh, if you sort of disregard the two um, extremes, Mm. uh, by and large, the, the people that will be going into a Biden administration are likely uh, to be people who will sort of read what they can do politically. I mean, sometimes I think we forget that um, it's not just the technocratic stuff. Yeah. It's what you can achieve politically yeah. uh, and what there's political appetite and will for. So uh, given those considerations and the current U.S. context, the way that the U.S. currently sees uh, China, uh, and and East Asia, I think there will there will be there will be some um, fortitude to the U.S. position in the region. The question is whether that kind of fortitude is something we can accept, or something we can live with, or something that we need to um, you know push back uh, mm. in in the region. So this is why I said that sort of trying to figure out what may, what may be going on is important. Right. Right. Yeah, I think we're out of time, and you 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 have probably have to go soon. So um, I think the if I can sum up, it really seems like the most important thing um, is really that we actually need to start by having um, a lot of domestic conversations about what our interests are and um, who we want to be, who uh, our allies are, who um, you know, or, or what what are the important issues. Um, that we are facing. So all these very, um, you know, important and deep-seated questions need to be asked domestically before we can have any real clarity uh, as to our position internationally, right? And it seems like, um, you know, and I think we're not alone here. We haven't really had a, a very clear international foreign policy for a long time um and and this and part of this is because we're not having these conversations um internally and part of it is because we used to have you know someone like Lee Kuan Yew who simply imposed his will on what the policies were and so we haven't had the opportunity in a long time and now that he's gone um you know there's been no new voice to impose them and we don't have anything to to sort of replace that I think uh, I'll add on to it is remember what I said about how ASEAN used to be a group of authoritarian anti-communist conservative developmentalist yeah. uh, regimes yeah. now what we also have uh, what we had then was were you know you can criticize these regimes for the human rights violations but at least uh, that commonality uh, allowed them to uh, take more initiative now mm-hmm. uh, Singapore I think uh, if we need to work with our neighbours it's and I and I'm a big believer in working with our neighbors, mm. uh, but I just also am appreciative of the fact that it's going to be very very difficult because um, you know we run down this uh, the uh, the Philippines you know with the Duterte administration is in a lot of flux uh, the the Thais um, again to uh, because of their domestic travails yeah um, you know they don't have a clear direction they need to figure out what they want domestically first yeah. uh, the same thing with our Malaysian friends. 
Yeah. Um, and I think you can make a similar argument about uh, our Indonesian friends. Mm. I mean, they have a little bit more clarity and they are quite adamant about their active Dambebas uh, policy, mm. so act, uh, free and active policy. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, but then they, they too have their sort of domestic con considerations. Yeah. So um, in Southeast Asia then, if we are... Assuming that Singapore has got it all right, we, <laughs> we have um, our act together and we need to sort of think about partners to work with. Who are we left with? Um, Cambodia and Laos are sort of weak. They, the question is whether they have been, uh, they're too beholden to Chinese to China, interests. Yeah. Um, okay, may, maybe Vietnam. But again, Vietnam too has its issues with, uh, with its uh, uh, communist uh, authoritarian mm. uh, regime. Um, and so, you know, when talking about this sort of uh, collective bargaining and working collectively, maybe we also have to think about working with extra-regional uh, partners. I, I wouldn't rule it out, and I don't think it's mutually exclusive, but that sort of broad thinking, I think, uh, is something that I'm really looking forward to seeing in Singapore, but I have not uh, mm. observed as yet. And, and to add on to your point, right, it's not just that all these countries were on the same page, and of course there were fewer countries in ASEAN during the Cold War, uh, it's that they were very authoritarian and led by often men with a very singular vision who could get together and make these decisions. So, you know, Suharto, Lee Kuan Yew, Marcos, Mahathir, right? They could just get together and decide for their countries. We can't do that anymore, right? And of course, Thailand had a succession of military governments and dictators. and so there They was, had a period from the 90s that was more open, right? Yes, yes, yeah. But um, I'm thinking of the Cold War, right? Once you hit 90s... Um, then first you have uh, the end of the Cold War, Berlin Wall, then you have financial crisis that leads to the fall. Well, you that, know, so that period, from, period is, that period from about 1990 to about 70, 1997, before yeah. the financial crisis, I think was um, an opportunity lost where we yeah. could have done all reform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's it's the pressures on ASEAN in that period were also part of the reason why Lee Kuan Yew, uh, there was the Bangkok Declaration and, you know, articulation of Asian values because it was a pushback against the fear of liberalization and liberal democracy seem, seem to have won the day, right? And instead of uh, our government saying, yeah, okay, let's give that a try and liberalize, they pushed back and said, no, Asian values, you know, Bangkok Declaration, let's all get there, let's tighten up. And domestically, of course, you have the Singapore story attempts to justify authoritarianism through a very distorted view of history, you know, and then, of course, that all falls apart for many countries with the financial crisis, which shows the hollowness of that. Um, so, yes, massive opportunity lost. Um, but I think um, my, my point is uh, just that, you know, today these countries have uh, democratized to an extent where, where these sort of um, the kind of unity that we saw and the action that we saw and the singularity of purpose, the commonality of purpose, rather, in the, you know, even as late as the, the 90s is simply not possible. And so where does Singapore fit in with all of that? And we need to have a serious discussion. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm the last person to, to say that I have all the answers to, to any of this. But this is why I think uh, to have a serious discussion um, is probably quite key. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's something that is uh, not happening as yet. Okay, so thank you very much, Ian. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate you taking the time out uh, and coming back on the podcast to talk about all these issues. This has been a really great conversation. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, and I, I've, I've certainly learned a lot and you know, I'm thinking about international relations rather di differently from before we had these conversations. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Uh, again, I find your lack of faith disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and also on that note, thank you to all of you as always uh, for joining us on Political Agenda. If you enjoy what we do, please do check out the website, newnarrative.com. Um, and if you'd like to support us, please join us at, as a member at uh, newnarrative.com slash join. Or if you're not really joined as a member, you can donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. Please also check out our sister podcast, Southeast Asia Dispatches, for more news interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia. And check out all the cool stories that we have on Southeast Asia on our website, newnarrative.com. Thank you very much and see you next time. Where you think that you're gonna go?